quick question for you as we're getting started. Have you discovered yet what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know your spiritual gifts? And, and do you know what I'm asking when I'm asking that? Maybe some of you would be a little unclear even on what I'm talking about. Let me explain it to you just a bit if you're uncertain. Um, if you know Jesus as your Savior, and this is, of course, for people who have trusted in Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, uh, that comes first. But once, once you've met Jesus... The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. He takes up his residence within our body. Our body literally becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to equip the believer to serve his people, to serve the church or to serve the body of Christ in very particular or very specific ways. Uh, Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, speaking of the giftings that he gives to us. The Bible says, To each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To every individual one of us who knows Christ, there have been gifts of the Spirit placed within us so that we as an individual might serve the collective whole so that we might serve the body. So here's an important note about spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are not for you. They are from God to you, but they are for his people. They're for the body. By the way, which is one of the reasons that we make such a big deal about being faithful to the body of Christ, to the house of God, being in a life group and connecting with other people, because that's where you get to serve. Because the kingdom of God is not just about receiving It's not just about learning. It's not just about worshiping. It's about giving away what God has put within me by his spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives to each one of us gifts, Paul writes, so that we might serve everyone else. The Greek word in your New Testament that's translated um, gifts in this idea of spiritual gifts is the word charisma. Really is the transliteration into English of charisma. The word simply means divine grace from God, from the Spirit. It is a divine endowment or a divine enabling which gives us the ability to serve God's people uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit in a very particular way, okay? Um, In other words, there are things that God wants you to do for his people that you can't do absent the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables you to do them. Now the Bible lists about 15 to 20 spiritual gifts. And depending on how you count, and some people believe there are a few more, others a few less. Uh, There are some that are active. There are some that we believe that were active in the New Testament and aren't active today. So it's it's a big issue uh, that, that we would need to take some time to talk about at another day. But there are somewhere between 15 to 20 spiritual gifts that are listed um, in, the New, in the New Testament. You'll find them in uh, the book, of, if you want to go read them, Romans chapter 12, they're listed there, some of them are. 1 Corinthians 12 lists some, Ephesians 4 lists some, and, and some others as well. So my question is, do you know your spiritual gift or gifts? 
Now you might be asking, well, how can I know? I'd, I'd love to know. I'm not sure. How can I figure it out? Let me tell you the best way to learn what your spiritual gift is. Remember, your gift is for the purpose of serving the body, right? So, so the best way to learn is just to begin serving the body. Just, just jump in and begin serving the, the body of Christ. And as you're serving, take note of where you find joy in serving, where you are effective in serving, and how people affirm your service. Can I say that again? Where you find joy, where you are effective, and how people affirm your serving. Now, we all ought to be willing to serve in any capacity where we're needed, but we want to spend most of our time serving in the area where God has gifted us to serve. And so just jump in and begin to do it. And God will make it clear. He'll direct you into what really is the way in which he has gifted you. Some people have taken spiritual gifts inventories. We actually offer a spiritual gift inventory through our place class, which happens uh, periodically in our Wednesday night Bible studies that we call Lift. And spiritual gifts inventories are great. They're just test questions, kind of like a personality test, but related to the spirit. Um, and, And they help guide you in what your gift might be. But I would encourage you to know that a spiritual gift inventory should be used more to affirm what you already believe is the case with your spiritual gift rather than try to discover for the first time what your spiritual gift is. But they're not bad at all. In fact, they're good. And I would encourage you to take one. I've done that. Years ago, I took a spiritual gift inventory through our own place class. I went through the class. I took the inventory. And, and that, I was a pastor. I'd been the pastor here at Brookstone for 15 years when I took the spiritual gifts inventory. And it affirmed what I already knew, what the Spirit had already made clear to me. And that was that my, personally, my primary gifting by the Holy Spirit to serve his body are in the spiritual gifts of leadership and teaching. That's what God has enabled me. It's what he's called me to do. So that was helpful. But I was also a little disappointed about some of the things I learned in that spiritual gifts inventory. Because if you're going to discover in an inventory what are your highest gifts, you're also going to discover what are your lowest gifts as well. And do you know what was my absolute lowest score in that inventory for discovering my spiritual gift. It is, the, it is the spiritual gifting that showed the least presence in my life. It was the gift of mercy. <laughs> and my wife said, well, amen. That's not a surprise <laughs> to anybody. But here's the beauty of that. It teaches me, it reminds me, when I come to Matthew chapter 5, verse number 7, of how much I need to surrender my life to the control of the Holy Spirit and how much I need to surrender to him more and more. Let's read the passage, Matthew, seven, uh, Matthew 5, verses 7 and 8. Jesus, in this listing of the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse number eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These are Beatitudes number five and six of eight. Before we begin to unpack these this morning, I, I want to ask you, have you noticed something 
about these Beatitudes? Have you seen how that as we've been studying them one by one or two by two through the last month, that they build one upon another? And how that every Beatitude seems to flow out of all of the Beatitudes that come or that have come before it. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you go back up to verse number uh, 3 of Matthew 5, where you'll find the first beatitude, verses 3 and 4, you find where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, these first two beatitudes speak to us about how we relate to God. They are about our vertical relationship, our relationship to God, as we come into the kingdom, right? So we learned in week number one that when we recognize our bankrupt spiritual condition, our spiritual bankruptcy, that we have nothing, we are poor, poverty-stricken in our spirit, we have nothing to bring to God, then that brings us to a place of mourning over our condition, poor in spirit and mourning. And when we are poor in our spirit and we mourn over our sin, we are comforted by God's grace as we are brought into the kingdom of God. That's Beatitudes number one and two. It's about how we relate to God. Then you come to Beatitudes number three and four. You'll find these in verses five and six. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now these two beatitudes, blessed are the meek and blessed are those that long for righteousness, these speak to how we relate to God, but also they begin to move horizontally and speak to how we relate to one another as well. When I am poor in spirit and I mourn over my sin... I come into the kingdom of God, not with my hands raised in victory like, yes, I made it, but I come into the kingdom of God with a spirit of humility. Only God's grace could forgive my sins and, and uh, uh, bring wealth to my spiritual bankruptcy. So I come into the kingdom of God with humility. That humility then produces a meekness toward others. Because if I'm humble before God, I will begin to live with humility or meekness toward others. I'll also live in the kingdom in a way that longs for righteousness. It begins this way, then it moves horizontally. This is the way that our relationship with God works. Listen carefully. It is like this, but it's also like this, right? I want to be transformed in my relationship to God. That's going to transform my relationships with people. There's a very simple principle which says this, and I hope you'll jot it down. It is that when our attitude and our relationship to God is transformed, that's vertical. When our attitude and our relationship to God is transformed, then our attitudes and our relationships toward others will be transformed. What happens vertically with my relationship to God is going to change how I live horizontally. Let me say it to you this way. Everything that God has done in you should produce a change through you. Everything that God does internally, he wants to manifest externally. 
So my relationship with God, while it's personal and private on the inside, it is also public and very much about the relationships that I have with other people. That means my marriage ought to be different if my relationship with God is being transformed. You listening? It means that the way that I raise my kids is going to be different because God's changing me on the inside. It means that the way that I relate to people at work, the way I move in my office or in my place of business is going to look differently because God's changing who I am on the inside. I'm being transformed inwardly and then transformed outwardly. And one of the changes that ought to take place in the life of every follower of Christ, as we come into the kingdom, Jesus says that we should become merciful. Kingdom people ought to be merciful people. And so I want you to jot it down. It's it's in the text uh, plainly, but just get it in your notes. Let's affirm this. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Now, as I mentioned earlier, for some of you, this comes very, very easily because the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of mercy. But just because I personally do not possess the spiritual gift of mercy, I am called to be a person of mercy, and I might need to surrender more fully. It might not come as easily to me as it does to someone who has that spiritual enabling, but we are all responsible uh, to live with mercy. So let's talk about it for a minute. Exactly what is mercy when the Bible talks about being merciful? Well, the word mercy is found over and over hundreds of times throughout your Bible, as you wouldn't be surprised to know. In fact, nearly 400 times you'll find the word mercy uh, in the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. Uh, Often it is translating in the Old Testament the Hebrew word chesed, which I've taught you about many times. The word is chesed. It means loving kindness or goodness. So when the Old Testament talks about merciful, being merciful or being, uh, living with mercy, it is saying that we are expressing a goodness or a kindness. In the Greek New Testament, it's mostly translating the Greek word elios, which means to show kindness, again, to show kindness or compassion. Now you'll notice that in both Old and New Testament, it is an active word. So it's not, mercy is not about a feeling that I feel. Mercy is about an action that I take. It is active compassion. In fact, here's the definition, jot it down. We would say that mercy is active, persistent compassion. It is a person who is actively and persistently compassionate It is a person who has a willingness to relieve another person's guilt or their suffering. When we live with mercy, we are about relief. We are about relieving the guilt that someone is carrying or the suffering that they're enduring. Now you might say, but that sounds like grace, right? We're giving, we're giving grace to people, and it is. Mercy is closely related to grace. In fact, I would say that if you had a, a coin in your hand, mercy would be one side of the coin, and grace would be the other side of the coin. They're very similar, but they really operate in different directions. 
Here's the difference. Mercy relieves me of something. It relieves someone of their suffering or it relieves someone of their guilt. Here's the way to say it. Mercy keeps us from what we deserve, right? Mercy keeps me from going to hell. Let me, make a, let me give a testimony this morning. I am not going to hell, amen? I hope you're not either. I'm not. Now you say, well, Pastor, you think you're too good for hell? No, let me tell you the truth. I deserve hell. I deserve to split hell wide open, as the old saying goes. We all deserve to go to hell, but you know, if we're not going, why we're not going? Because God's merciful. It's his mercy that keeps us from hell. It's his grace that takes us to heaven, right? So mercy keeps us from what we deserve, but grace gives us what we could never earn on our own. So I want to be a person of mercy. We want to be people who, um, who live with this habit, with this determination that we're going to be about relieving people of their guilt, removing or helping alleviate their serving. I mean, their suffering. So there are there are 360 times, 360 verses in the Bible which talk about mercy. What do they teach us? Write this down. Number one, they teach us that our Father is rich in mercy. Our heavenly Father is rich in mercy. Mercy describes God. It really does. If you wanted to, if you wanted to, to write down a description of what God is like, surely your description would have to include the word merciful. It describes God because mercy is mercy describes what He does for us, what He does for us as a result of His love for us. Merciful is simply who God is. In fact, let me turn back. You don't have to turn, but I want to read to you from Exodus chapter number 33, where Moses asks God for the impossible. As a human being, Moses says to God in Exodus 33, 18, I beseech thee, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And God says to him, you can't see my glory. If you see my glory, you will die. No man, no human can see my full glory without dying. And so God says, here's what I'll do. God God says, I'll make you a deal. There's a a cleft or a hollowed out place in the rock. Do you remember that old hymn? My wife sings it so beautifully. uh, Rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me. That comes from Exodus 33, 34, where God says, there's a cleft in the rock I'm going to put you in that cutout place in the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. Imagine this moment. God says, I'm going to put my hand over you, and then I'm going to walk past. And when I walk past, I'll remove my hand. I'll just let you see the, the remnants, sort of the, uh, the train of my glory. And so he sees the glory of God. And as God does this, he walks by And chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 5, says that as he walks by, God describes himself to Moses. Moses can't see him fully, so he's telling him what he's like. He says, let me describe myself to you. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with him there, and the Lord proclaimed his name. And the Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed, saying, this is what God said of himself, I am the Lord, the Lord God who is merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. There's God's self description of him, of himself, that he is merciful and gracious, that he is patient, and that he is abundant in goodness and in truth. This is who he is. Our father is merciful. Uh, Micah, the prophet Micah uh, said this in Micah 7 and verse 18 when he asked in amazement, who is like our God? Who is a God like you? You pardon iniquity. You pass over transgressions. You retain not your anger forever because you delight in mercy. The Bible says that when we want to know what God is like, we should know this. He is full of mercy. Praise God for that. Now, we should also acknowledge that this fact of God's mercy is the very reason, in fact, it's the only reason that you and I can say, I am saved. Let me take a quick survey. If you are saved, would you shout amen? amen. Hallelujah, I am saved. Would well, you know why we're saved? If you just shouted amen, do you know why you're saved? you know why 22 people in the last three Sundays have been saved from their sin? Here's why. Because God is merciful. Because all 22 of those folks and every single one of us who said amen deserve hell. But mercy keeps us from what we deserve. You're in Matthew 5. Turn over to Ephesians quickly. I want you to mark this in your Bible. Go to Ephesians chapter number 2. Let me show you what Paul writes about this mercy of God uh, which has saved us. Ephesians chapter 2, look with me in verse number 1. Have your pen ready, I want you to mark this. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says this, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now there's the description of all of us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He's made us alive. We were dead because verse 2 says, In time past we walked according to the course of this world. And according to the prince of the power of the air, we, worked, uh, we walked according to the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We all lived that way, verse 3 says. We all lived according to the lust of our flesh. We all fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were all by nature, by birth, the children of wrath, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Praise God. Listen. It would take a God who would embrace rebellious, lustful, greedy children of wrath and forgive them and make them his children. It would take a God who had plenty of mercy, right? Who was rich in mercy. What Paul says is that the only reason we have any hope of salvation is because of the rich mercy of God. The Bible also teaches us that God uh, is rich in mercy in that his mercy is, is renewable. You know, in, in uh, the news, they talk a lot about renewable energy. We need renewable energy sources. Let me tell you what's uh, renewable. It'll never run out is the mercy of God. The Bible says in Lamentations that his mercies are new every single morning. Maybe someday you've lived and you've messed up so bad you've, and God's been merciful to you and you've thought, that's it, man. If I mess up one more time, I am out of here. 
because I had to exhaust. I'm overdrawn on the bank of mercy from God. No, he's rich in mercy. He never runs out, and there'll be more mercy tomorrow morning. Amen? It's his mercy that's renewable every single day, and it holds us. It sustains us, and it keeps us in his family every single day. And one last thing I just want to say about his mercy and you'll find this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, that it is God's mercy that makes life make sense. Would you agree with me? Sometimes life doesn't make sense, does it? Sometimes life hurts and it's tragic and there's hardship and heartache. We don't understand why things happen. We lose loved ones or we have sicknesses or diseases and it's painful and we grieve and weep. But we can get up in the morning and we can know that God is at work in the midst of it and we can know that he is making it all work together and have a purpose and make sense because of his mercy. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse 3. One of my favorite passages says this, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all of our tribulation. When we suffer loss and hardship, he's there mercifully comforting us. He comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort others. With, uh, which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. It's the beauty of the mercy of God as we walk through hardships, that we suffer and we're, we're hurting and we're weeping, and this merciful God is with us, holding us. And then we turn around a month later, six months later, a year later, a decade later, two decades later, and somebody we know is walking through the same thing, and we are able to tell them about a merciful God, the Father of mercies, who will walk through that with them. And suddenly the pain has a purpose. And suddenly we realize that God's mercy makes life make sense. These 360 verses teach us that God, our Father, is merciful. And if that's true, then you should know that you and I, as Christians, we should be merciful too. We should. We should be merciful too. Are you in Matthew chapter 5? You probably are. Go over to Luke chapter number 6. Just two books over, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Look at Luke chapter number 6. I want you to underline this verse in your Bible. If you have a highlighter pen, highlight it. Uh, If you have a paper clip, put it on that page. Draw arrows to this verse. Never forget it. Here's a command from your Lord. Verse 36 of Luke 6 says, Be merciful. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Oh, there you go. There's the challenge. There's the command. He says, if you're mine, if you've been transformed inwardly by this merciful God, then you need to give mercy away. You need to be merciful to others. How do I do that? Turn a couple of pages to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to hurry through this for the sake of time, but I just want to show you an example of how we can give mercy away in the, uh, this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter number 10. Look at verse number 25. Luke 10, 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up, tested Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? What do you read? 
He gave the two greatest commandments, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and mind, and your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, do that, uh, and you shall live. There's the standard we talked about last week. Live perfectly, and you can go to heaven. And this uh, lawyer, rather than saying, well, I can't do it, he tried to justify himself. He said, well, I don't know who my neighbor is. Tell me who I should love as myself. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus answering said... A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite came to that place. When he saw him, he came and looked at him, but then he left him, went on the other side. But then a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, uh, came where he was. And when he saw the man who had been robbed, he uh, had compassion on him and he went to him and he bound up his wounds. Now, by the way, remember the definition of mercy? It is active compassion. So we wouldn't have said the Samaritan was merciful if the text had stopped at verse 33. He saw him and had compassion. We oftentimes do that, but then we don't follow through. Mercy came in verse 34. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an end, took care of him. On the morrow when he left, he gave two pence to the innkeeper, said, take care of him. If he spends more, when I come again, I'll repay you. Uh, now, Jesus said, verse 36, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And he said, the lawyer answered, he that showed mercy on him. He showed him mercy. Now, you say, well, I want to be merciful like my father is merciful, so how do I do it? This parable teaches us how to do it. Here it is. Listen, when you come to somebody in the ditch, when you see someone whose life is in the ditch, no matter how they got in the ditch, maybe it was their own foolish actions that put them in the ditch. Maybe you tried to keep them out of the ditch. They ran right past you and jumped in anyway no matter how they got in the ditch. Maybe if it was disease or sickness or somebody else's actions or whatever. When you see somebody suffering, here's what we're to do. Take it upon yourself to seek to alleviate their suffering, to remove their guilt, and do what you can to show mercy. (laughs) And the guy with the least gift of spiritual mercy is preaching that message. But this is what we need to do. Some of you who have the divine enablement of mercy are going, well, yeah, of course. And some of us who don't have it are going, are you kidding me? And Luke 6.36 says, because your father is merciful, then you're to be merciful. Amen. All right, so try, by the grace of God, to live with this mercy. Verse number 37, Jesus says, who was it that was his neighbor? Well, it was the one that showed him mercy. Now, go back to Matthew chapter number 5 to the Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It simply means that they shall receive more mercy because we've already received mercy. That's why we're being merciful. But as we live showing mercy, then God will pour even more mercy in our lives. And so here's the rhythm of this Beatitude. I want to I receive the mercy of God in my own life. But not just hoard it to myself and say, this great God has been merciful to me. I want to receive the mercy of God into my life. And then I want to give it away. Luke 6, 36, I'm going to be merciful as he is merciful. 
I'm going to give mercy away. And as I give it away, God will pour more mercy in. Live with that rhythm. Receive it. Give it. Receive more. Receive it. Give it. Receive more. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Secondly, and quickly, for the sake of time, we're going to go to verse number 8, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall... um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you jot that down, that beatitude? Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I'm going to be limited on my comments about this particular beatitude a bit because of time, but we have made plans for you to discuss this in more detail in your life group. And so I hope you'll do that this week. And if you're not in a group, go by the life group lounge or speak to one of our pastors and get some help getting connected. You'll talk about this in your group to be sure, but I want to tell you something about our Lord. I want you to know that he, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. He sees everything. He does. He knows all about us. And he doesn't only see our behavior. Don't misunderstand. He's not like Santa Claus, Okay. It's not like he knows he's watching. He knows when you've been naughty or nice. No, he sees everything. He doesn't just see naughtiness or niceness. He sees motivations. He sees hearts. When John saw him in Revelation chapter 1 on the Isle of Patmos, John described him in Revelation 1.14 as having eyes of fire. Those all-consuming flaming, burning eyes that could see to the core of who we are. This is what God said of himself in 1 Samuel 16 and verse number 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on his heart. God sees the heart. Have you ever noticed That when you read the Gospels, that Jesus was always tender and kind to the the 'er ne'er-do-wells, to the the drunks and to the the pagans and to to the sinners around. But he reserved his most harsh language, his highest criticisms were for the most Religious people, the Pharisees in their, in their lot, the ones who were, were presumably doing what the law commanded them to do. Now, why would he do that? Because here's what he knew about them. He saw beyond the robes and the rituals, and he saw their hearts. And he knew that they were not pure in heart, that though they presented outwardly as being devoted, they in fact We're not. Listen to what he said in Matthew 23 and 27. Woe to you, Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. You're like those graves. You look good outwardly, but if you take off the lid and take a look inside, it's not pretty. But Jesus said this. He said, in the kingdom, I want you to serve me with a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they 
shall see God. Let me say just a couple of things about this, about how we can make sure that we're leaning into purity, purity of heart, and that we want to be uh, living and serving the Lord with purity. Number one, three simple things, write them down. Number one, make sure you're saved. I just want to say this because so many people are coming to faith in Christ recently, and I know I've been talking uh, for the most part to Christians today, but I want you to hear me. If you've never trusted in Christ today, living out these Beatitudes is impossible for you. It's only possible by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this living with a pure heart is absolutely impossible for somebody who's never trusted in Christ. Because the Bible says our heart is evil. And the scripture says that when we come to faith in Christ, our heart is sprinkled clean. It's washed clean so that we can live for God. It's impossible for a person who's never surrendered their life to Christ. So if you want to have a pure heart, you need to make sure you're saved. Number two, uh, if you are saved, I would encourage you to keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts. Now, what I mean by that is simply to say that it would be the regular practice of your life to confess to God your, your sin, to confess to God your failures, to be honest with God about what you know is true of the failures in your heart, internal motivations, when we're not serving him authentically, and just confess that. There's a wonderful prayer that we can learn in Psalm 51. It's the prayer of David after his sin, Psalm 51.10, where the psalmist David prays this prayer, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I can't create a clean heart in my own life, but God can do that. And so I want to ask him to create in me a clean heart. It's interesting when Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse number 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. The, the word that's translated pure is uh, the word katharos. And you can imagine we get our word catheter from that or to catheterize and it means to flush out. This, when he says blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying blessed are those whose hearts have been flushed. They're, they're, they're regularly flushed out. They're purified. So keep short accounts with God. If you want to uh, live with pure heart, just regularly confess. Don't hide. Don't have secret places in your heart. But keep short accounts. Number three and finally, uh, bathe, because we want to be pure. So bathe your mind in the Word of God every day. Bathe your mind in the Word of God every day. Now, the word heart uh, in the Scripture is the Greek word uh, cardia. You would know we get our word cardiology from that. It's, it's the heart, but it doesn't mean the blood-pumping muscle. It's not the, the actual physical heart. It means the inner man. It's the, it's the inside of us. Uh, it refers to the mind, the thoughts, the real person. And so I want to I bathe my thinking, bathe my mind, bathe my heart in the Word of God every day because I want my heart to be pure. Where am I going to get it purified? I'm living in a dirty world, Right? So, so the world is going to fill my mind with, with worldly things, not necessarily evil, sometimes evil, but not necessarily, just the things of the world filling my mind. Every day I need to bathe my mind in the Word of God. So if I want to have a pure heart, I've got to take that dip in His Word every day. Make sure you're saved, keep short accounts, bathe in the Word, and your heart will become more and more and more pure. Now Jesus says, here's the promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does that mean? 
they will see God. Now, they're going to see God in heaven anyway, right? I mean, if they've come to Christ, if they truly are born again, we'll see the Lord in heaven. But when the Bible talks about seeing God, it means to, to more fully know him or more fully understand him. It's this, it's this promise that when my heart is pure, I am walking in more intimate fellowship with God, and so I know him more fully. It's just like a marriage. You know, if you, in a marriage relationship, when there's purity in a marriage relationship, meaning there's not a lot of pretending, you're not lying to each other, you're not hiding things, there aren't, there aren't a bunch of secrets that you're keeping from one another, you're not pretending about things, because when all that stuff's there, the relationship goes like this. You don't really know one another very well, right? Maybe I'm just describing your marriage. And you're saying, man, I wish I had a stronger marriage, but it seems like we're this far apart. Well, listen, if you both will do this, just start purifying your motives and your actions toward one another and in all of life, then your marriage will come together and you'll know one another fully. And that relationship will be more beautiful and you'll have a greater understanding and knowledge of one another. Same thing's true in, same thing's true in our relationship with God. You want to see God? You want to know him more fully? Make sure you're saved. Keep short accounts bathe in his word every day, you'll see him. And then the other thing I think that the verse means is that we'll see him active in our lives. Sometimes people say to me, well, I, I read all these things in the Bible. I see that God's an active God in history. But I haven't seen God do anything in my life. I've never really experienced God's activity, God's presence, God's work in my life. I don't really experience that. You want to see it? Have a pure heart. Serve him out of purity, and when you do, God will go to work in your life, and you will see his activity. You will see his work. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May God give us grace to live with mercy, to be merciful as he is merciful, and may God give us grace to live with a pure heart.